Bibles tonight, if you turn to Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, as we continue to make our way through, this is the fourth and final sermon in the story of the flood, um, even though what follows in Genesis is, will continue to be the direct effect of it. Um, one of the most important things to understand and to remember, I, c- I can't state that enough, as we read God's word, is that there is a single narrative running through Scripture. It's a tight, coherent unit. The Bible is not a collection of good or even wise sayings or plot elements that have just been thrown together at random and can be applied however and whenever we choose to apply them. The story of Scripture is deliberate, and it's deliberate in the point that it is making. It is the burden of the author of Genesis who I believe was Moses, to make sure we understand at this point in the narrative that the flood did not eradicate evil from the world, nor did it did it remove the sinful nature of mankind. That's a huge element of what's happening here. The flood was not God's plan of redemption, uh, nor was it his final answer to evil, although it is ultimately a part of it once the whole scripture is written. The end of the flood narrative is a very strange story, to be honest, about Noah and his curse, or God's curse on Canaan, who was his grandson. Genesis introduced Noah, we talked about this, as a second Adam, who was commissioned as God's chosen son to carry on the mandate that was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is the parallel in the Noah story to the fall in the Adam story in Genesis 3 as the story of creation is recapitulated. Remember, that in and of itself is a pattern in Scripture. The themes of Scripture repeat and progressively intensify until the arrival of Jesus. It it kind of culminates in him. Noah is also a gardener who plants a vineyard. And like Adam, Noah is also a disobedient son whose sin will result, very interestingly, in shameful nakedness, right? We, we, we've seen that before. In this episode, the text is making the point that once again, the human partner fails as a covenant keeper, right? And therefore, the fulfillment of the promise will be due solely to the faithfulness and grace of God, who is always a faithful covenant partner. At the renewal of creation is the renewal of the conflict between the two seeds, which is ultimately the conflict between man and God. Humanity is in open rebellion against God as both its father and king, and only the coming of that promised seed will bring that to an end. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you for its clarity, its precision, its consistency. Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak tonight, Lord, in such a way that you would be glorified, that your people would see it and love it and believe it. And Father, I pray that you would help me for that reason. I pray that you would also help everyone that listens to do so, to understand and to believe. And I ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Let me read verses 18 and 19 to start of verse 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three sons, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. The theme here is renewal both positive and negative. The first renewal in the text 
is the renewal or technically the reaffirmation of humanity's sinful nature. It's still there. The curse from Genesis 3 continues. The flood did not wash that away. It washed everything else away. It didn't wash that away. This is evident immediately in the family that was preserved through the flood, the family of Noah. The result in the text, as we'll see, is another division of the human race between the godly and the ungodly. Noah's sons are presented again, Shem, Ham, Japheth. There's a note included here, the reason for which is given in the following story that shows Ham was the father of Canaan. That connection will be important for the negative results of the story, which is, this is a story of sin. The author also tells us that from these three sons of Noah, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. All the peoples of the earth, dispersed throughout all nations, originated from the three sons of Noah. That's the reason for chapter 10, which we'll cover as a part of next week. But the point of that is not merely anthropological or geographical, The implications are that the sin within Noah's family are going to have ramifications for his descendants, exactly like Adam. Wherever mankind is, there is the curse. It cannot be escaped. Its effects cannot be removed or fixed. If the blood of Adam falls to his descendants, the curse of sin and death and violence always comes with it. The Bible establishes from the beginning that a Savior will be needed for all nations. There's never a time in Scripture where the world is not in view, ever. Even God's focus on Israel for a time is working towards his global goal. That was the ultimate point of it. Look at verses 20 through 29. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So after the flood, Noah planted a vineyard and drank from the fruit of his labor. The problem was not what he was drinking, right? To plant a vineyard was part of mankind's original commission from God. The goal for Adam and Eve in Eden was to spread the vineyard all over the world. The problem was his lack of self-control. He drank too much wine. He got drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Beloved, this is important. Nakedness was once the sign that all was perfect between man and woman and between God and man. After the fall... Nakedness is almost exclusively linked with shame, which is precisely what it is for Noah. The sin of Ham is described in verse 22, when he saw that his father was naked and told his brothers about it. But Shem and Japheth, rather than also looking and shaming their father, take a garment and walk backwards into the tent so that they don't see and cover Noah. What does it mean that Ham saw his father's nakedness? There are a few theories, or not a few theories, my opinion is that the most textually accurate is to take it literally. 
That this, that's literally what happened and that's all that happened. If for no other reason than that is literally what Shem and Japheth do not do and they are not cursed, right? They, uh, did not see his nakedness and Ham did. They walk backwards, try to cover it. They do cover it. What is the big deal with what Ham did? The holiness of God as father is the big deal with what Ham did. What Ham does shows immediately that mankind is still in rebellion against God through Ham's derision, his mockery of his earthly father. Ham disrespected his father. He made light of him, mocked him, trying to bring his brothers into it with him. The flow of the text reveals that Ham's mockery of his father is ultimately the disavowal of God. It's a huge deal, which brings the difference between the two seeds back to the forefront of Scripture, the seed of the serpent and the promised seed of the woman. Ham's sin is mainly about disrespect that Ham has for his father. That's a sign of a deeper problem with God. In our modern culture, it's easy to, uh, in, in other words, instead of simply and quietly taking care of the situation himself, covering his father, instead he goes and makes it known to his brothers, apparently like it's some kind of funny joke, look how stupid our dad is, that kind of thing. In our modern culture, it's easy to overlook the seriousness in that culture of disrespecting the father. I, um, I love my mom and dad very much. And I, growing up, my dad had a rule that my siblings, I was the oldest of, uh, altogether the oldest, I guess, of uh, five, but I had two siblings that have passed away. Um, there was a rule in our home um, that we all came to know very well. You were spanked for three things in our home, no questions asked, no discussion, no what happened here, three things. Lying, outright disobedience, the third Always, however, brought the worst spankings. That was, the third was disrespecting my mother. Especially if my dad wasn't home. Which, by the way, is the only time it happened. Because you wouldn't do that in front of my dad, right? So that, for, for whatever reason, that sent my dad through the roof. If, of, of all three things. Lying, he told me, my dad told me one time, he said, you used to lie so much, it, it drove me insane. Like I would just do, I would lie about the worst things, but, but this one, and I don't want to tell you why I know this one so well, unfortunately, but God help you if my dad got wind of you shaming, disrespecting my mom, right? That my mother was no pushover at all, but she also knew that the scariest words she could utter were, all right, I'm going to tell your dad when he gets home. We, we would beg, right? We would beg, please spank me, mom, please spank me, you know, just make it end. There is something um, primeval about disrespecting your parents, even as you grow older. To this day, um, I, I, mean, I don't know that it would be the same thing, but, but if I were to step out of line at 44 to my mother and my dad was to hear about it, I'm going to hear about it, right? To this day, you, you, and, and even, even to my father, there is, there is just something that goes all the way back to the beginning about being disrespectful of your parents, disrespectful of your mom and dad. Um, there are whispers of the forbidden fruit there. of, of disres- if, if you cannot disrespect your parents in front of you, you, you can't possibly respect 
God. That's what's really at issue here. All of God's laws are, are really, there's a transparency in them with the person in front of you that you love, even if it's your enemy, that is really speaking to God, right? All, always, God is always ultimate in these things. It is not that the woman, the mother, is not as important as the father. It is, however, in a representative way, the father stands in a place that leads directly to God, right? So to disrespect him is a major issue, a major issue. Ham should not have done this to his dad. You say, how can you make so much of it? Because the Bible makes so much of it, right? This had long-lasting implications all the way throughout Scripture that continue to this day in the world, in the geopolitical world, because of what Ham did in this moment. This is a huge deal. There isn't, I think it's worth mentioning, there isn't an extended treatment here on the dangers of drinking from the fruit of the vine. Take note of that. That's, the text doesn't go on to talk about drunkenness. It's an afterthought of what happened. Noah isn't cursed here for being drunk. Right? Not that being drunk is a sin, you understand, but that's not the focus of the text. Noah's drinking is not cursed. Ham's son is cursed for Ham's sin. Don't miss the forest for the trees, beloved. Please, in your application of scripture, fermented grapes are not mankind's problem. His wicked heart is his problem. Only the heart of man can shipwreck God's good creation. The creation is not where the problem is for man. Inside is where the problem is for man. That's why we don't go to the nations with rules. We go to the nations with salvation. Right? We don't need assistance. We need a savior. We don't need our behavior corrected. We need our nature removed and to be born again. Right? That, that's what we're in need of. That is the point of the text. The ongoing inherent sinful nature that causes us to sin that lurks within every single human being ever born. Noah finally wakes up from the effects of the wine and in verse 24 knew what Ham had done to him, probably because the other two sons told him so he offers a curse and a blessing, which will have, you see how the, the pattern repeats that this is, this is something that continues to happen from God forward, which will have implications for the future relationship among the descendants of the three brothers that are the only ones here at this time and their families. These conflicts go back even further actually than the one between Isaac and Ishmael, which we'll get to. But again, Notice how the patterns are being revealed in the Bible. There's another curse that falls as a result of sin. It's been Adam, Cain, now Canaan. It's not going away. The curse states specifically in verse 25 that a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. That implies conflict to come. Why was Ham himself not directly cursed? I think he is. Um, it, it wouldn't be unusual to read that, of course, the actions of Ham, they're, they're, they're going to have consequences for his descendants. That is a curse on you to hear that, to know that. To, that that's another pattern in Scripture. A similar thing takes place in Genesis 49 when the actions of Jacob's sons have implications for all of their descendants. So somehow, some way, there's going to have to stand a, a covenant representative for mankind before God that instead of transmitting sinfulness to the race transmits salvation to the race, right? 
Somebody's going to have to step in and finally obey. You see, you see what scripture is creating from the word go? But the curse on Canaan that he is to be a servant to his brother shows that that conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is renewed. It's going to continue. That's how the story fits into the grand narrative of scripture. We can certainly make some immediate connections to the fulfillment of this curse with Canaanite cities and kings in Genesis 14. Absolutely. But it would be unfortunate not to see here a connection with the Israelite conquest coming of the land of Canaan when the Bible finally gets there. That, that all goes back to this moment. There was This was the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18 through 21. The charge given to Moses in Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, which is carried out by Joshua. The descendants of Ham become like Ham in their disobedience, which is ultimately dishonoring their heavenly father. Right? That That's ultimately what the sin of Canaan is. The same thing that Ham did. And then they become subject to Israel when Joshua leads God's then chosen son, Israel, into the land. The other side of this text, however, is the blessing on Shem and Japheth, which gives priority to Shem, who will be the son through whom the godly line will lead to Abram. Beloved, the sovereign God makes choices all throughout Scripture. That's also a pattern established in Genesis. That should not shock us when we see it. God makes choices because God is sovereign. But the God of Shem, Yahweh, the Lord in capital L-O-R-D, that's his covenant name, is blessed. And the blessing of Japheth includes God enlarging Japheth so that he will dwell in the tents of Shem in verse 27, meaning that there will be peace that takes place between the descendants of Shem and Japheth in the table of nations that follows in Genesis 10. The descendants of Japheth are those who dwell in the areas of Anatolia, which eventually will be Asia Minor, Turkey, that area, and Greece. Through the line of Shem, later in Genesis 12, God promises to bless all the families of the earth. And then later in Isaiah 19, 23 to 25, and 66, 19 through 20, the prophet takes up that promise and sees its ultimate fulfillment at a day yet to come still in the future. Beloved, eventually, meaning, eventually the conflict between God and man will end. And the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will end. Because the God of plan and promise will keep his word and send his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only cure that heals mankind. The only one at the macro level between one another and the micro level between the nations. Only Christ. The peaceful coexistence promised here will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ through the mission he gives to his people to go into the world, to all nations with the gospel in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. You see it immediately in the narrative of scripture. What does the apostle Paul do in his missionary journeys? He takes the gospel to the Gentiles where the areas of Greece and Asia Minor. And many of the descendants of Japheth came to dwell peacefully in the tents of Shem when they were united to Christ in his body, the church, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Gentiles become sons of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, 29. God never breaks from the plan and design he created and instituted at the very beginning in the book of Genesis for all the nations. He never breaks from that plan and that goal. 
ever. And he sticks to it and accomplishes it all by his own promises. That's what's happening at all times as the gospel goes out to the nations. All of his promises are yes and amen in the promised seed of the woman, Jesus Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 1.20 Beloved, we are meant to see Jesus as the Son of God, Son in Scripture, accomplishing as a human being, as a substitute, all that human beings were mandated to do by God, but could not do because of their sinfulness. That's what specifically Jesus is coming to do. Not because God came up with a new plan, but because God has never broken from his original plan. Two things that are always certain are identified at the end of Genesis 9. God's commitment to his promise and his original design for creation. But also, mankind's commitment to wash his hands of God. Until the Lord Jesus returns to bring a final end to our war against God, wherever God's reign seeks to be established through the gospel, mankind will be fighting to resist his rule in order to rule themselves. That conflict takes no time whatsoever to be renewed in the story of the flood. It happens immediately, immediately. The text reveals that the mockery of Ham's father is evidence of our desire to renounce God. The same sin is being repeated and it will continue to be transmitted to all the descendants. That's always in our DNA. Remember, the fall was not so much a fall as, as, as it was a reach upwards. It was an attempt to go up, to be God, to self-identify, to rule ourselves, to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. You see how dangerous that is? We talk about this a lot. We think that's one of the greatest things about mankind. It's evidence of the fall, right? It, it is not a good thing to self-identify, to find your identity in yourself, to find your morals in yourself, to find everything in yourself. That comes from resistance of God. It's evil. It's wrong. It's bad. And that's what's coming out of us every time we sin. That, that, that at the core, that's what's happening. I want to rule myself. I will decide what I'm allowed to do and not do. I will determine what is right and what is wrong. It's somewhat morbid to realize, but it's true nonetheless to this day. And it is morbid. Every time we reproduce, we also reproduce rebellion because we're all rebels. Right? So we and our children and their children and their children and their children and their children, you understand, will always need a savior. Moms and dads, we can't muddy the water for our kids and make them think that the key to their salvation is in their connection to us. The key to their condemnation is in their connection to us. And we have to remember that because I think we love our kids and so we think the only way you'll be safe is if you're close to me. And I understand that and I know that there's a sense in which that's very true as they're growing and they're little. It's just, we are as in need of a savior as our children are we need the same thing and we can't let our kids think we're their saviors. Right? I think this is, I think this is a dangerous thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's every time a family 
on its own in the Bible tries to circle the wagons and just, hey, we're going to keep you right here and keep you out of this nasty world, it goes awful. Every time. right? You'll see that that's what's happening here. That's what will happen, goodness sakes, with Lot and his daughters. Get out of the city. Get away. Buckle down. You know, go into hiding. Let's stay together. We have each other. It goes awful. The, the I think we're going to get into this when we get into the Tower of Babel. I think this is evidence of the sinful nature of mankind. The revert to, to circle the wagons and, and just stay. And I think you see this. I, the reversal of Babel is Pentecost. And what do you see? What does God do to the church in Jerusalem that was so great and and self? Uh, focused, right? Just we're going to stay right here, right here in Jerusalem, and everything is great. We're sharing everything; it's awesome. What does God do to that awesome church? Blows it up, right? We were never meant to stay inside and circle the wagons. We aren't here to stay, right? We have a rescue mission to proclaim. We, we should build that into our children, right? That into our children. You're once you're a believer, you have become a part of the commission to the nations. Right? There, there's an outward looking focus to Christianity. It's not circle the wagons. It's go and tell. It's go and proclaim. We are as in need of a savior as our children are. We both need Jesus because humans are going to human. That's what we do. Left to ourselves, that's what we do. Even if God has just done something as amazing as preserved us in an ark through the flood. That, look, Having that wonderful experience in their minds did not keep this young man, or however old he was, from completely dishonoring his father. And again, evidence of our need for a savior is clear when we notice how God treats what seems to be the most insignificant of sins. You, you, you didn't step in the way as a substitute for your wife to keep her from eating the fruit. Death and condemnation for all eternity for all mankind over that? You, 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 you didn't cover up your father when he got drunk and, and got naked. You didn't cover him up. You didn't, you went and told your brothers like it was funny and we're gonna curse the rest of mankind for this? Why? Because God is holy. We don't have any concept of what sin is when we're talking about offending a holy God. It's, it's not just like a little tick against you. It, it brings with it condemnation and death, no matter how small it is. When we see that, we're meant to see we are in such desperate need of a savior, right? The world needs a lot more than our good behavior. It needs a message of salvation, of rescue. We all do. Our kids need it. We need it. Their kids are going to need it. But over against our rebellion, humans are going to human. Yes, it'll never stop. But over against our rebellion, God is going to God. He's going to be a savior. He has confounded our best wisdom. Have you ever thought about this? When by his son's surrender to the union of ours and the serpent's conjoined attempt at authority at Calvary, that was the pinnacle, right? Satan and man joined forces. The Gentiles, the Jews that were against Jesus, all right, we're going to take him out. We're going to do it. We're going to rule ourselves. We have no king but Caesar. His blood be on us and our children, right? Let, let's just, let's do it. How did God respond to that? 
His son laid down his life for us. He put himself in the hands of our self-identifying authority and confounded the whole scheme we had and won by, by letting us, because that's what happened. Make no mistake. Jesus let us kill him. And through our condemnation of him, what does he do? He rises again, triumphant over us, showing us who the boss is, if you will, purchased eternal redemption for all who lay down their arms and throw themselves at the feet of Jesus. That's what he did. He finally did it. And he did it by using our attempt to overthrow him against us. We need redeemed. We need our sins washed away. We need our debt forgiven. We need our iniquity removed. My goodness, we need a savior. We need a savior. We are rebels by nature and only a savior king strong enough to trump all that can save us. Only him. Realize that all that is a part of what Jesus has done for us. When our conflict with God was renewed, tragically, God's unbroken promise to keep his word and send a savior was renewed, reaffirmed also. So we're doing our thing. God is doing his thing. And beloved, God always wins. Always. And he's your God tonight. You are his. We are his. Rest in him. Tell others where he may be found. Tell them there's salvation. Tell them there's amnesty for rebels from the king who rules over us. And trust in him. He's ours. We're going to pray. We're going to sing a hymn together. If there's anything burdening you that you would like to come and pray for tonight, the front will be open. It's page 297. If you'd stand, please. We'll sing here in just a moment after I pray. Page 297. We close this. Father, I thank you tonight for your son. I thank you, Lord, that in the face of our rebellion, you are stronger. I thank you that you're sovereign and we're not, because if we were, your word would have no meaning, no power over us, but you are, and Father, we praise you. And so, Lord, I ask tonight as we sing this song and think about our Lord Jesus, that you would fix the eyes of our hearts on him, the very essence of our souls on him, to understand who he is for us and what he's done, that it might have an effect on us that makes us indestructible here, which would not be a testament to us, but to you. And we ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.